It's Sunday, March the 20th. I'm David Aiken, and you're listening to The West Block. More than 3 million Ukrainians have fled the country since the Russian invasion began almost a month ago. People have been streaming into nearby countries like Poland, Romania, Moldova, all to escape the fighting. Since the start of the war, more than 3,300 Ukrainian nationals have come to Canada. Now, Canada is easing immigration rules for Ukrainians and allowing temporary emergency residency of up to three years. Joining us now to talk more about this, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, joining us from Halifax. Um, I, I want to first of all talk about the numbers. Um, we heard from the Canada Border Services Agency that since hostilities started, about 3,300 Ukrainians have come to Canada. I know you've been counting since January 1st, and if you add all that in, we're about uh, 9,200 Ukrainians here. What is your department planning for? In the context that I think we ended up with like 73,000 Syrian refugees, how many refugees from Ukraine uh, should we be planning to take in? Uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me, David. I really appreciate uh, your willingness to shine a light on uh, what Canada is willing to do to support the vulnerable Ukrainians who are fleeing Ukraine. Um, to answer your question, uh, it's hard to predict the precise number that we should plan for, and that's why we built a program that was designed to respond to demand rather than a, a predetermined allocation as we do with ordinary refugee resettlement uh, programs, which are typically spread uh, over many years. We needed to be in a position, given the uh, massive numbers of people who were flowing out of Ukraine to the West, uh, to respond to the, the demand that we see. And as the facts change, uh, the flexibility that we built in by building a system that's based on the way that we uh, welcome visitors to Canada uh, allows us to uh, handle uh, significant numbers. Uh, and the uh, just to put it into perspective, um, the system in an ordinary year when it comes to visitors can process uh, up to a couple of million people a year. Uh, but with respect to Ukraine, we're seeing, as you mentioned, since the 1st of January, more than 9,250 have arrived already, and about that many have applied again to come under the expedited process. And now that we've launched the new program this past week, uh, we're going to keep a very close eye on the numbers to see how many more applications come in now that we've introduced this new expedited platform with fewer barriers, barriers to entry. The reason I asked how many Canada might be planning for or expecting is because uh, I'm just wondering how big the, the crisis gets. We know the UN agency that tracks this says we're approaching three and a half million people have left Ukraine. And I wonder if you're getting intelligence from that global scale. Could it be five million people leaving Ukraine? Eight million people? I mean, surely the West, broadly speaking, has to be able to go, do we have the resources to house that many people, at least temporarily, on the borders of Ukraine? Uh, well, realistically, uh, it, there are no certainties when it comes to war, and we need to be prepared to deal with whatever situation may arise. Uh, when I think in particular of countries that border uh, Ukraine to the West that are already seeing millions of people flow out, um, there's not a choice as to whether they can uh, handle the numbers of people. The people are coming regardless of what uh, what those countries would have. Uh, the Canadian perspective is that we need to do our part. Uh, we cannot let this attack on the rules-based international order solely be the problem of countries that happen to be geolocated to the western uh, border of Ukraine. Uh, we've made a decision that we're going to be there to contribute to this effort, not just through the financial contributions, the military aid that we've provided, but also by opening our doors to people who are fleeing uh, during this time of war to provide safe haven until it's safe to return home. And I want to pick up on that because our refugee programs for Afghanistan refugees or Syrian refugees, I think people understand that those Syrians and Afghanistans, Afghanis who come to Canada, they're going to build their lives here. They're not planning to return or odds are poor. 
But I think that the feeling is the Ukrainians that are coming or leaving their country, they hope it's temporary and they're, they're going to be, go back home. Does that change the way you build the program and provide resources for Ukrainians once they get here? Knowing as well, too, it's not a lot of men. It's going to be women and children primarily that are coming. That surely means we have to respond differently for the supports that the Ukrainians need once they get to Canada. That's absolutely right. And it's essential that we design a system that's tailored to the unique circumstances of the crisis that we're facing now. Um, when I look at a, a more typical refugee resettlement uh, process, when there seems to be a, a protracted need to have uh, refugee camps, sometimes led by the United Nations, and have the countries of the world make a contribution to welcome those people over time and provide um, certain kinds of resettlement supports that will establish a person to have the rest of their life lived out in Canada. Uh, with respect to the crisis in Ukraine, uh, we needed to build a system that had that flexibility to respond to the short-term demand, but the supports that are needed may vary greatly. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing is the first influx of people largely already have a connection to Canada, whether it's family members, a history of travel to Canada, some have employment connections, and that does uh, require a tailored response. Uh, of course, we have heard as well, as you mentioned, that a significant number of the people who are fleeing Ukraine desperately want to go back. They're not leaving by choice. Uh, they're leaving because there is a war ravaging their homeland, and they do hope to return back when it's safe to do so, to be reunited with their families who are on the front lines. There will be some people who hope to stay in Canada, certainly, and we're working right now to develop a family reunification pathway for people who have family members in Canada now. And of course, those who uh, make it to, to their, uh, their way to Canada on a temporary basis will have an opportunity to apply through our ordinary immigration streams once they get here should they wish to convert to permanent residency. But our focus in the short term is to make sure that we provide an opportunity for Ukrainians who are fleeing the war to come to Canada so Western Europe is not uh, uh, bearing the brunt of this uh, influx of um, uh, uh, people who are leaving Ukraine right now. I, I want to use our opportunity this is the last minute or so to just get up to speed on the Afghanistan program. Um, I think the number right now is we've brought around 9,000 Afghan refugees. We've committed to taking in 40,000. There may be the perception that we're your department, Canada, the government, is putting everything it can into getting the Ukrainians here as quickly as possible, and that's perfectly appropriate. But the feeling is, why didn't we do that with Afghan refugees? Why couldn't we do what we're doing with Ukrainians to get these Afghans who are stranded in third countries to our country? I take some objection to the uh, the characterization that we were trying to do uh, less somehow for, for Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, the circumstances are, are very different on the ground. In the immediate aftermath of the, uh, the fall of Kabul, uh, thousands of Afghans made their way to Canada. Uh, but all of a sudden, the situation became very challenging, not because there was a lack of political will, but because the Taliban, a listed terrorist organization under Canadian law, has seized control of the territory. There's nearly 10,000 Afghan refugees who've already been approved to Canada that are inside Afghanistan today and don't have safe passage to exit the country. We're working with partners in the region, including some uh, uh, who are working to have a presence to move people on the ground in Afghanistan and continuing to advance the, uh, the, the resettlement of, uh, of Afghan refugees in Canada. The circumstances on the ground certainly make it more challenging, but our commitment has not wavered one bit. Uh, we want to uh, make good on our commitment to resettle 40,000 Afghan refugees who will make their permanent home in Canada. I was in Alberta the last few days and had an opportunity to meet with some of the new arrivals, uh, some who had, uh, uh, we had uh, meetings set up with human rights defenders who've come to Canada and others who I just happened to bump into on the street. 
And I can tell you the ones who've made it here now are so grateful for the uh, new lease on life that they've been given. And it uh, just uh, serves as motivation for me to continue to welcome uh, Afghan refugees as quickly as possible until we make uh, good on our commitment to welcome 40,000 Afghan refugees, including many specific individuals who helped Canada during our time in Afghanistan, who are still in Afghanistan today. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, thank you so much. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. And that was the Ukrainian president speaking to the U.S. Congress. Volodymyr Zelensky is appealing to Western allies directly to step up and do more to help Ukraine. NATO leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, are meeting on Thursday in Brussels for an extraordinary summit. For more on the diplomatic efforts to end the conflict, very pleased to be joined by former Liberal Cabinet Minister, but more importantly, perhaps former United Nations Ambassador Alan Rock. It's great to see you, Alan. And let's start with those Zelensky speeches to the Canadian Parliament, the U.S. Congress, the German, the German Parliament. Remarkable speeches, I thought, in that he, he was not letting Western leaders or the West off the hook. Nor can he. I mean, he's desperate. Uh, he's a remarkable leader. The speeches were so compelling, and he makes a case that uh, it's hard to answer. And what's making us all feel so desperately frustrated at this point is the fact that we all want to get in there and push this bully back across the border and defend with Zelensky the sovereignty of the Ukraine, but we can't. And the situation's all the more difficult for two reasons. First of all, the Security Council, to which we might usually look for some form of relief, is dysfunctional. It's missing in action. And the second thing is the consensus, which I, which I agree with, is that if we push Putin too far, we might just take a gamble we could lose, and the stakes are too high. A nuclear response is just too big a risk. So what can we do? That's really the question. I don't want to minimize what we are doing. The sanctions yeah. are unprecedented in their strength and their breadth. The military aid we're providing it pushes the limits. Uh, the surveillance from the air we're providing through NATO so the Ukrainians can, uh, Ukrainians can know where the Russian, Russians are and their air force. If there's one more thing I think we can do, and this is on the diplomatic front, David, right. it's through the United Nations and the General Assembly. In the absence of the Security Council, the General Assembly has an important role to play. And I say that if Canada were to form a group of like-minded countries and enlarge it and work with allies and build a consensus in the General Assembly for a, a recommendation. They can't pass a binding resolution. Right. They can pass a recommendation that has very large moral force, calling for a peacekeeping group that would be selected from contributions, not from the U.S. and Canada, but from Africa, from Asia, hopefully from China, mm -hmm. which is a big contributor on the peacekeeping well, side. Well, your, your successor at the U.N., Bob Ray, our current U.N. ambassador, yes. uh, you know, he has been on the record. I chatted with him last week saying... That veto, or that we, we give Putin the ability to veto, and we have to take away that ability for him to veto diplomatically, militarily. And the UNGA, the General Assembly, would be the spot that you can start to reduce Russia's veto at the UNSC. Yes, and I think it's time to get more specific about that. And I think a recommendation for the creation of humanitarian corridors, which the International Committee of the Red Cross is working on even now, uh, together with a peacekeeping force 
to enforce it and protect people. Mm -hmm. and, and if we can get China to contribute to that, it would be a wonderful coup. But have a presence on the ground that will make us feel at least we're doing something to provide protection to those who are so very vulnerable. Without provoking uh, nuclear That's response. Right. That's right. I, I'm curious about, from sort of the diplomatic, uh, sort of your, your diplomatic experience, the U.S. president last week called the Russian president a war criminal. I mean, he was unequivocal about that. Many commentators have, and I think it's pretty clear there's crimes against humanity happening here. What does that have an effect when the U.S. president is saying to the Russian guy, you're a war criminal? Well, I, for one, was delighted to hear it because the fact of the matter is he is a war criminal. It's a crime to cross that border with his army. It's a crime to target civilians, let alone maternity wards and hospitals. It's a crime to unleash your military against people who are not combatants or fighters. Mm -hmm. He is a war criminal, and, and let's, let's put that on the table. And let's mobilize international public opinion against this guy. And by the way, I think the key in all of this is going to be China. Turkey's important as well, but China, I think, is wavering. We saw last week some news stories out of China that they were very reluctant mm -hmm. to lend enthusiastic support to some of the things Putin's been doing. They've now stopped exporting certain parts to, to Russia. Um, I think that Xi Jinping is looking at the international response to this and wondering whether he wants to be associated with a pariah. Um, just for our last question, I wonder about Canada's role. I heard Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie last week talk about our role as being able to convene people, to bring people together. We've obviously taken a side in this conflict. Where do you see Canada, particularly looking forward to the NATO meeting this week? I know she was criticized in some quarters for what she said, but, you know, I think in, we have to admit we're not a military superpower. Our influence in this world does not come from our military, no matter how much we spend. The fact is our influence in this world, our reputation at the United Nations, is for the ability to bring people together, find common ground, yes, convene. And that's what I think we should do now in the General Assembly. Let's bring those 141 countries together again with a strong recommendation to establish a peacekeeping group to patrol safe and humanitarian areas as a first step toward protecting the population of Ukraine. And at NATO, Trudeau's off there on Thursday. Where, where do you see NATO then fitting in? Well, I think they're going to have this very discussion. I think they're also going to be talking about how far they can go without provoking the bear. What about these MiGs in Poland? Mm -hmm. Are they needed in the defense of Ukraine? And if they were to be sent, would that cross a line in Putin's mind that would result in a reprisal? I think they're going to be talking about a whole range of things. How far can we go to assist Ukraine? These next couple of weeks are crucial, David. If Ukraine can survive these next two weeks with the weakening Russian force and the growing public uh, sentiment mm -hmm. against Russia, uh, I think the dynamics of a negotiation could be very different. So we've got to get through these next two weeks. Yeah, let's cross our fingers. Alan Rock, good to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate Pleasure. it. Pleasure. Thank you, David. Now, at one point in the Conservative leadership race, many in the party thought it would amount to a coronation for Ontario MP Pierre Polyev. But it is turning into more of a contest and more of a crowded contest than many thought. And today, one more contestant gets into the race. His name is Scott Aitchison. He is a two-term MP for the Ontario Cottage Country Riding of Perry Sound, Muskoka. And Scott joins me now from Huntsville, Ontario, the town, of course, where Scott was mayor before entering federal politics in 2019. Scott, welcome to the program. Let's jump in right away with the first question, which I'm sure you're going to get asked a lot. Why? Why should conservatives pick you to be leader? 
Well, let me first say thank you, David, for having me on the program. It's uh, great to be here. But uh, I think that people should choose me because they recognize that the Ottawa is not working. Uh, it's a divisive and and the rhetoric, it's all about division in Ottawa. And uh, I think Canadians have had enough of that. And uh, I think they're ready for a, a new approach. Your party ha in the last few weeks in the House of Commons um, has made quite a point of noting that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, the leader of the Liberal, Liberal Party, has been contributing that to that division, um, making it very personal, demonizing the trucker convoy, etc. But there is a candidate in the race, and I just mentioned him, Pierre Poilievre, who has made himself very popular by doing just that against his opponents, demonizing the Prime Minister, people on the left who disagree with him. So that, to me, says you disagree with the tone of Mr. Poilievre's politics. I disagree with the tone of our federal politics for the last several years, actually. I think, you know, both parties are guilty of uh, using division and differences of opinion amongst Canadians to divide us, whether it's difference of opinion or differences of where we live, east versus west, urban versus rural. There's no shortage of it on all sides of the aisle. And I think that Canadians have had enough of it. I think it's actually tearing our country apart. Uh, I have years of experience in municipal politics where we build consensus, we work together, and we bring people together. And that's what I think our country needs. It's what I offer. Uh, and I'm looking forward to crisscrossing the country and, and presenting myself as the option to bring not just conservatives together, but to bring our country together. Um, let me just talk about that, that idea of uh, municipal politics. Um, I used to cover small councils. I covered one near yours down in Aurelia at one point in time. It's nonpartisan. People work by consensus. But there's another candidate in this race. His name's Patrick Brown. He's a big city mayor, and he's won in a city, Brampton, where all five seats are liberal seats. Um, why wouldn't Patrick Brown's candidacy be suitable as somebody who might be bringing people together? Uh, well, I, I just think that uh, we, we need someone that uh, can appeal to people across this country. And I think it's important to appeal to people in the GTA. Absolutely. Uh, but we need candidates that can appeal to people literally across this country. I think I offer that. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to having a great discussion and great debates with all the candidates, including Mr. Brown. It seems to me there's a, a been a sort of purity test, if you will, uh, that some candidates want to put forward, and that being, where do you stand on the carbon tax? And then maybe the other one would be, where do you stand on gun control? I wonder if you just give us a quick snapshot of, as people try to slot you in a little bit, uh, where are you on the carbon tax and, and where's your stance on, on our current gun control? Well, I, I think that uh, a purity test is kind of a silly thing, and I think the labels are kind of silly as well. I think it's important for us to be principled conservatives. Uh, I am opposed to a carbon tax, but not for the reasons that maybe people might think. It's not because I just think it's politically expedient, and it's not because I don't believe that climate change is a real serious threat. I just fundamentally, I represent people in this area that can't afford to put food on the table and heat their homes. And so it's, it's an added expense that Canadians can't afford, particularly the most vulnerable in our society. Uh, and I just think that we need to be talking about these issues with a, from a conservative perspective and be consistent in our message, uh, honest with each other, and stay true to our word. And on gun control, that came up, as you know, in the last election, uh, there was a flip-flop in mid-campaign, uh, for better, for worse. And if you talk to liberals, that's when they got wind in their sails. What about gun control? If the liberals try to wedge you guys again on the issues of assault-style weapons, etc., I know you're a largely rural riding, and there's going to be a lot of hunters and farmers in your ridings that, uh, um, that you represent. So where are you on the gun control issue? 
Well, I think it's another classic example of uh, a liberal government that looks to demonize a smaller group of Canadians to appease an, a larger group. Uh, Law-abiding firearms owners are among the most responsible people in our society. And uh, there's no question we need to deal with uh, rising gun violence in, in some of the larger urban centers. But, you know, we, we know from chiefs of police and, uh, and, from, and from boots on the ground that the, the, these, these guns that are being used in these, uh, these heinous crimes are generally guns that are smuggled from across the border. We need to invest more in protecting our borders. We need to invest more in lifting up the people that are struggling to get, you know, out of these communities that are that are struggling. We, 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 need to, we need to provide hope for young people. When a young person finds that the only hope they have is to join a gang, then we failed that young person. And we need to do more to in, invest in, in the programs that are gonna lift people out of those circumstances and stop demonizing law-abiding firearms owners. In the 40-odd seats in the greater Montreal area, 40 seats, I should point out, that's more than the seats in Saskatchewan or more than the number of seats in Alberta. A Conservative Party hasn't won a seat there since 1988, and that was when Brian Mulroney won with a guy named Jean Charest at his elbow. How do Conservatives win seats in a big urban area like Montreal or an urban area like Toronto, where Conservatives have not had any success really since Stephen Harper's majority? How do, you, how do Conservatives connect in our big urban cores in, outside of Alberta and Saskatchewan? Well, I think our, mis our message has to be consistent. I think we have to demonstrate that we, as conservatives, we can, we can be trusted, that we have the character and the, not just the policies, but the character and, and the courage to stick to our convictions and, and to speak to the folks that live in, in these suburban and urban ridings uh, and make sure that we're addressing the concerns that they have as well. And, and I think that the only, way, the only way we can do that is by being united as a party uh, and making sure that our message is clear and consistent uh, and engaging with every community across this country. Scott Aitchinson is the MP for Perry Sound Muskoka, elected first in 2019, re-elected in 2021, hoping to lead his party into the next general election. Scott, thank you so much and good luck with the race. Thanks, David. That's our show for today. I'm David Aiken. Thank you for listening to The West Block.